Good morning and welcome to Calvary Chapel. If you have your Bibles, please open with me to Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 11. I've titled this message, Paul's Changed Life. Let's open in prayer. Father, again, we gather at your feet. We gather to hear from you, to hear about your Son, your love for us, what our lives should look like. And Lord, it's our desire that we would be changed during this time, transformed, that our minds would be renewed. And as we go back into this world, Lord, that we go, go with a, a new attitude, a new life change, a change that brings a change to those around us because we're not the same people, that they see you and they experience you. So Lord, thank you for your word, your word that is powerful, your word that is transforming, your word that cuts as deeply into our hearts as need to be to bring us to our knees, to bring us to that place of dependence upon you, that we walk down that straight and narrow path that leads to life because we're dependent upon you. So speak to your servants today. And all God's people said, Amen. You know, as we come to our text today, Philippians chapter 3 and verses 4 through 11, we see a, a powerful autobiographical statement. It introduces the most dramatic and compelling salvation testimony of the Apostle Paul. You can find Paul's testimony, that is his salvation testimony in Acts chapter 9. In chapter 22 of Acts and also in 26. But here it, it fills in what was going through the very mind of Paul when he became a believer. What he thought, how he ticked. Let me show you and, and read our text. Beginning in verse 4, we see, Although I myself might have confidence, even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised on the eighth day, the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all of these things to be a loss in the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, and that I may know and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed 
to his death in order that I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Paul, we're going to look first at his dependence upon his self-righteousness. That's in verses 4 to 6. And his self-righteousness means that he had this confidence in his flesh. In fact, that's what we see in verse 4, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. And if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in flesh, I far more. Self-righteous, confident. If anybody could get to heaven, it would be he. He stood above the crowd to others when they looked at him. But what Paul is going to do is point out seven things that he once trusted in for his own salvation. But when he understood that gospel, that is the gospel of grace, he realized that all of his credentials, the privileges that he had, his rights, they were only rubbish. Let me show you what I mean. It's there in verse 5 that we see that that salvation is not by ritual at all. In verse 5, he says, circumcised on the eighth day by this statement, Paul was saying, hey, look, salvation is not by ritual. Now, in Leviticus 12.3, it was on the eighth day the flesh of the floor skin should be circumcised. Now, that word circumcised we talked about last week is to cut around, to cut away the flesh, to be sensitive. Now, this was the perfect day that every Jewish boy was required to be circumcised. This was a sign of a covenant between Israel and God. So every boy was to do this. It was an outward action of what was supposed to be happening in the life. Now, think for a second, the the number eight. Whenever you see that number eighth or eighth, it's always a sign of a new beginning when it's used as a symbol. It's on the eighth day that a person would be circumcised, meaning a new beginning that would be a changed life. And it's not enough just to do the outward. That's only a a symbol in itself. And, And they were trusting in that symbol as many trust in symbols today. But look with me on the screen. Jeremiah 4.4 gives us some more information. Again, Jeremiah is speaking for the Lord. says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskin of your heart. Men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, or else my wrath will go forth like a fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. See, it's not enough just to circumcise the outward. That was just an outward showing, again, that they were going to make a stand for the covenant and other nations would know that they were a circumcised people. That meant they were clean, but no person's clean unless their heart is circumcised by God. So this circumcision was just simply a, a, a essential ritual in Judaism. But in the end, he counts it as a loss, unless his heart was circumcised, unless he, he was separated really to God, and God had done that work in him. And it really gives us a picture today that, that salvation does not come by any ritual at all, no ceremony, whether it be circumcision or 
or confirmation to some churches or infant or adult baptism or any Protestant observance of the Lord's Supper. Rituals cannot save a person. It's only based upon a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's what he finds. Putting faith in the one who died for you and me. Just as Abraham was saved, he believed God's word that the Messiah would come and he trusted in what God had said. And there's where salvation begins. By believing God at his word. Also in verse 5, we see another thing. Salvation doesn't come by race. Notice what he says. He was also of the nation of Israel. Paul was simply declaring that salvation is, is not by a race at all. Paul's declaration that he was of the nation of Israel supports the idea that some of the Judaizers were Gentile converts to Judaism. But Paul, he was of the birth, a member of God's chosen people, of whom God declared, You only have I chosen among the families of the earth. God had chosen Israel to be a nation. They are the only nation ever in this world chosen by God to be a light. Now, you and I, we are chosen too. We're chosen, that is, in the church to be a light. But they were chosen as a nation. Being in the center of the world, those in Egypt would travel through in the caravans to Europe. In Asia, in Asia, and Europe would come down and they would go down again to Egypt. And they were to be like a city, a light on a hill. They were to be a witness and testimony of the true and living God. But they were the spiritual nation. And they were a, a literal nation. And God had chosen them for a purpose. Just as he's chosen you to be and to have a purpose. Let me show you something, though, in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Then what advantage has a Jew? Or what benefit is of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, that we were entrusted with the oracles of God. See, it was this nation that God would give his law. He would give his very nature so people would know who he is. That was the purpose. It wasn't about the circumcision. It wasn't about the other. It was about that God had given them understanding, illumination, revelation to who he is. And it's especially through the word. God has given you that same illumination, understanding, the resources to study God's word. We can study it like never before. But more than all the resources we have, he's given us his Holy Spirit who brings the illumination and the understanding. Well, again, salvation doesn't come again by a race. No, because God wanted him to reveal him to the rest of the nation. It was a privilege, yes. And by the way, these first ones we see, 
Paul had nothing to do with it other than being born into it. His circumcision was done by his parents. He was also born of the tribe of Benjamin, and he had nothing to do. It was something natural, and sometimes we're the same way. We receive a lot of special blessing privileges, but we can take no credit for it. Notice again in verse 5, he, he notes this fact that salvation, it's not by, uh, again, a rank, and he uses the, the tribe of Benjamin. See, this was another of Paul's personal, again, credentials or impressive credentials, which he was a member of the tribe of Benjamin, which was one of the most prominent tribes, if you stop and think about it, in Israel. Benjamin was the younger of two sons born to Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. He was also the last son, that is, of Jacob's sons to be born, the only one who was born in the promised land. If you remember Saul, he was he was a member of the tribe of Benjamin, the first king. And then there was Mordecai in the book of Esther, who was the tribe of Benjamin. And then when the 12 tribes were divided, there were 10 went to the north and two to the south. Again, Benjamin and Judah were the south. They were faithful. They remained faithful and loyal to the Davidic dynasty where the other 10 left. The city of Jerusalem. Stop and think about it. It was in the, the territory of Benjamin. What a privilege to be a part of But yet, Salvation does not come by that, by that rank, by something that you're born into. And even in our country, there are some that say, well, you know, my grandmother and my mother were Christians and therefore I'm Christian. No, that doesn't work. And again, it's that personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Also in verse 5, we see this other thought that he has, that he is a Hebrew of Hebrews, and salvation is not by tradition at all. No. No, what is he saying when Paul claims to be this Hebrew of Hebrews? He was, he was saying he strictly maintained his family tradition and Jewish heritage. He was born in the, in the area of Asia Minor, not in Israel, Tarsus. But he remained, this is what he's saying by this, firmly committed to the language, to the orthodox traditions, to the customs of his ancestors. He did not become Hellenized, assimilated in the, the Greco-Roman culture. In fact, he left Tarsus for Jerusalem to study at the feet of the famous Rabbi Gamaliel. He clung to his Jewish heritage so much that he could declare. But after he saw the glory of Christ, it was just one more thing transferred to the column, a loss. It was again, it was only going to be rubbish. That is, into the, the knowledge of knowing Jesus Christ. Yet, he had trusted, he had boasted, he was self-righteous about it. Salvation is not by religion. Look again in verse 5, because we see, as to the law, he was a Pharisee. See, Paul pursued his Jewish heritage to the extreme. He was so zealous for the law that he became a Pharisee. In fact, notice in, with me in Acts 26, 5, since they have known about me for a long time, 
if they're willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. He was radical again Pharisee. The strictest. See, that word Pharisee is a Semitic word. This simply means a separated one. He was separated unto the law. Now, the, the term law is not limited to the Pentateuch or even the Old Testament, but it includes the whole rabbinic system, which was also traditions. Matthew 15.3 talks about people in that situation, and he answered and said to them, referring to Jesus, why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your traditions. And see, they put those traditions, please understand this, above the commandments of God. Just as some today put their books above the very word of God and their traditions. Why, they were to be separated once. They were separated to the law. Why, you and I are born again. That is the believer's. We're separated unto Christ. But again, it's not by, again, of some type of religion, being of this church or that church, it goes back being separated unto Christ, our Savior. See, Paul cherished his status as a, a Pharisee, but one more item in his spiritual loss, it was rubbish. See, no priest, pastor, theological scholar, member of some holy club like John Wesley, could ever achieve salvation by such means. Unless a person is born again, he will not enter the kingdom of God. We need to be circumcised of our hearts by, the, by God himself. Look at verse 6. As to seal a persecutor of the church. Salvation is not by even by sincerity. Some people are so sincere, but they're wrong. See, further evidence of this zeal for his heritage, Paul, Paul confessed. This was the evidence. He was a persecutor of the church. He was going against the goat. He didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He's willing to have people put in prison. His zeal his supreme religious virtue. He was zealous, zealous uh, to love God and hate whatever offended God. But he was assuming because God would have to strike him down with a bright light. He would be converted on that road to Damascus and so he's going to persecute the church. Zealous, yes, misguided love for God gave rise to the hatred and he persecuted all of Christianity could. In fact, in Acts 8, 3, it tells us more about him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging men and women off, and he would put them in prison. Right before his conversion, it says, now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, and he was going to get, again, papers to throw more people in jail. But something happened. There was a changed life. He was converted on the, on the road to Damascus to do this. 
His life was so totally changed that in Acts 9.21, listen to what the people said about him, because he was preaching now the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. He was he was preaching the very things of those that he persecuted. So in Acts 9.21, it says, all those hearing him continue to be amazed. And we're saying, is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called upon his name, who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priest? Acts 22, in his testimony, says, I persecuted the way to death, binding them, putting them, both men and women, in prisons. Now, the way was what the church was called at that time. It was the way. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. There's no way the Father but through him. Not through all of these things, but through his life. And this is what happened. This was the change that would come on him. But again, when we look at verse 6, we see something else that was going through his mind and how he was thinking as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. See, Paul was really saying by this, as you follow the whole context of passage, salvation is not by some legalistic righteousness. It was before his conversion that Paul outwardly conformed to the righteousness which is in the law. Now, Paul uses the law in the broad sense of the Jewish tradition, not just the Old Testament. He observed it all. He kept it all. And those who observed his life found his behavior to be blameless. Now, Paul is not saying he never sinned. That would, that would deny, again, his theology or contradict his Jewish theology and testimony. But no, he outwardly, he appeared to keep it all. He appeared to have it all together. But again, salvation does not come by this legalistic righteousness. Unless a person is born again, they will not enter the kingdom of God. And when they're born again, the Holy Spirit circumcises our hearts. Well, it's going to be in verses 7 to 9 that Paul, again speaking, but what things were gained to me, those things I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. See, this really just sums up, again, the radical change that took place in Paul's heart once he met Christ Jesus. And I believe this is what happens in every one of our hearts. There is a change when you meet Christ. We don't hang on to the things of the past. We don't trust in the things of the past. We don't trust in what we've done. We trust in Jesus Christ. In fact, look with me. We see again the surpassing benefits of, of, of knowing Christ Jesus. Look with me, the knowledge. It's there in verse 8 and 9a. More than that, I count all of these things a loss. And the surpassing knowledge of the value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all these things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. See, Paul considers any item of self-righteous to be worthless rubbish. Anything that would hinder him from the, the knowledge and knowing Christ, his self-righteousness, had to be cast aside. Philippians, he's talking about again, verses 5 and 6 we just read. What would hinder? 
being circumcised in the eighth day, the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, to the zeal of persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is of the law, found blameless. These things hindered him because he couldn't see Christ. Going back to verse 7, he says, I counted it. Again, in that perfect tense. And then again in verse 8, we, we see that term again. The counted. He's saying all this notorious works that Paul had counted to earn God's favor. Any that he might do in, in, in the present, in the future, they're all but loss. They're of no value in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. The in, incomparable worth of knowing him. Now that word knowing is interesting because it, it, it's but a form of what we call gnosis, or from the verb gnosis, which means to know experientially. It means by personal involvement. A knowledge by experience. Experience that God wants us to experience and know him. It's not this head knowledge. It's not this outward knowledge. It's to know and rest in a faithful God who's able to keep you. This is the surpassing knowledge of Christ. And it's far more and mere more than any mere intellectual knowledge and the facts about Christ. You know, it's interesting in the New Testament, frequently we see, again, those who know Christ. Let me just share a few verses in John 10, 14. It says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. John 17, 3, notice what it says. This is eternal life, that you may know you, the only true God, Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Notice that personal knowledge. And then in Matthew uh, chapter 7, if you remember, there, there were those in that day. They would say, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name, perform miracles here? And he says in Matthew seven twenty three, and then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Apart from me, men who practice lawlessness. See, they were trusting in their works. Jesus says, I never knew you. Jesus wants a, a relationship with you. He wants you to know him. He wants to walk with you and so aware of his presence. He wants you to listen when you read the word with the intent to hear him speak to you. As you walk down that straight and narrow path, he wants to guide you. He wants to direct you. John 5.20 says this, And we know the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. And his Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God, internal God. He, he's given us understanding. He's given us, again, that idea of illumination. He's made it evident in every person's heart, Romans says in this world, to know him. He's revealed himself in creation, but there was something special that was given over to the Jewish people. And that was, again, this illumination, this knowledge of the law. Because God would reveal himself and the history, how he dealt with them. 
And this is what he wanted us to know, is that salvation involves a personal relationship and a knowledge of, of Jesus Christ. Abraham was a friend of God. Abraham spoke to God. Moses heard God and spoke for God. Enoch walked with God. David, when he wrote many of the Psalms, sang to God. He confessed to God. That such awareness of presence of God, think with me for only a moment. Psalm 23. It's more than just words. It's more than just a story. This is the heart of a shepherd. And this is a shepherd who understands the sheep and he likens himself to the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd, he says. Because just as he treated his own sheep, he sees God treating him and dealing with him in the same way, personally active in his life. God didn't create us and, and then just leave us alone to see how it works out. Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He finds his peace and comfort in him. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows, and surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You hear the heart of the psalmist, David. He knew God in a very personal way. He knew that God was active in his life. He knew that God was guiding him, directing and protecting, and he knew that he'd be in his house forever. He's going to contrast all these things that he once trusted in as rubbish for knowing who Jesus Christ is. Now, that word rubbish, it's a very strong word. It could also be rendered waste. In many cases, it's called dung, manure. That's all it was. At nighttime, when the animals came into the house, the people would go up to the loft and they would go to sleep and the animals come in and the heat from the animals would help keep the people warm in the house. They'd take the animals out in the morning, sweep up the dung, dry it out, and they'd use it and burn it. And another way of saying it symbolically, he says, all these things I trusted in, they're rubbish, they're dung. It's like wood, hay, and stubble. It's all going to be burned up. Please don't trust in your works. Please don't be a Pharisee. It's about a dependence and a personal relationship in a faithful God to you and me. Isaiah 64, 6 says this, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. All our righteousness is filthy as rags. Look at Philippians again, 3.9. Not having the righteousness of my own derived by the law, but which is through faith in Christ, 
the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. See, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, he imparts faith to you. In fact, he even gives you the faith to believe you just need to respond. He initiates and we respond. Paul had spent his his life futility, trying to obtain a righteousness of his own by keeping the law. The righteousness of one's self-effort, external morality, the religious ritual, moral works, all produced by the flesh, all wood, hay, and stubble. Notice in Acts 19, excuse me, Acts 15, 9 through 11, And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Notice, now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing a neck upon the disciples, a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of Lord Jesus Christ in the same way they also are. Romans 3.20 says, Because By the works of law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 makes it clear, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not the result of works that no one will boast. Now, one of the sad things about a self-righteous works mentality Generally, when you see that, people are judging others because they don't live the life they live. They're so confident that they're righteous. They're looking for flaws in everyone else. Judge not, lest you be judged in the same manner you be judged. First, take the log out of your eye before you take the speck out of someone else's eye. That's what self-righteousness does. It's sin-sniffing, fault-finding in others, but can't see its own sin because the log in its eye. The thought of the law of Judaism gave him life, but the law in reality killed Paul. When he saw himself really utterly sinful, he renounced all those works of righteousness, all the things that he was doing, on his own, and accepted the free gift of God's righteousness by grace. And there's a cross note on that. Read Romans 7, verses 9 through 13, and and you see it. Paul gladly exchanged the weight, the burden of his this legalistic self-righteousness for the righteousness which comes by faith in Christ Jesus. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith not on anything that you and I could ever do, but believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Look down at verse 10. We see another word I want to call your attention to. It's the word power. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Paul knew that there was no power in the law. There was no power to save him, no power to change him. Overcome sin? No. But because he knew Christ 
and had the righteousness imputed to him, and he was given that Holy Spirit, he had the power. The same power that raised Christ from the David from the grave was now living in him. He had the power to be victorious, the power to change a life. The resurrection itself was the greatest display of Christ's power, and that same power was in him. We also see another word I want to call your attention to. It's in verse 10, the fellowship. And the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. The fellowship and being conformed to his death. I want to talk about it in this way, that he's speaking about a a fellowship that identifies with Christ. In Romans chapter 6, if you remember that when a person is being baptized, they they're laid back and then they're raised up. It, it It's symbolic of, of dying with him and being raised in that newness of life that we identify with what he did. We identify with the sufferings, all that he went through. And then when we're raised in this newness of life, we are being conformed again to his death. We, we're dead to the the old man, and now alive in Christ. And we need to reckon ourselves as dead, dead to the flesh. When Paul met Christ, he gained a companion to be with him in his suffering. One who endured more intense persecution, more than anyone else who ever lived in this world, and all of it was undeserved. Look with me, Second Corinthians 12.10. Therefore I am well content in weakness, with insults, with distresses and persecutions, with difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, I am strong. See, he drew his strength from Christ and Christ's Spirit from the identification with what Christ has done, that he knew that one day he would be raised up and he would be with the king forever. Look with me in verse 11. And he goes on to say, in order that I may attain, attain to the resurrection from the dead. And, And I've added this word here, or titled this word, glory. One day, you're going to receive a glorified body. See, that's what 1 Corinthians 15 talks about in verses 51 through 53. Notice with me, it says, Behold, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In the moment, in the twinkling of eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised perishable and will be changed. For this perishable must put on imperishable. This mortal must put on immortality. One day, every person will be raised. Everyone will be raised. The the believers will be raised up to the, the Bema seat, the reward seat. But then those unbelievers will be raised up at the white throne judgment. Those who have been born again, those who have been circumcised of the heart, they have a changed life. That's their desire to 
to be continually changed and transformed in the image of God, which one day will occur. But within the church, there are many that are deceived. The Bible makes it clear there's wheat and tares growing side by side. This is just the professing body of Christ. Can you imagine if the church was truly a light? Can you imagine if every life within the church was changed? The power of the resurrection of life and how would it affect those around us? See, this life is not about church buildings. It's not about denominations. It's not about offerings and rulings and regulations. But it's about a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ. And when we do everything, we come together. We will be doing exactly what God has planned for us, whether it's building a building or it's evangelizing or ministering to people. It's it's really about a life-changing encounter. It's Christ living us, guiding us down that path, directing us to do what is right and pleasing in the sight. It's not something I think. It's him showing us step by step what we need to do. And when that happens and when it's seen happening, it is a radical change. Not just the changing of, of one life, but the changing of all those lives that church. It will make a difference in a community, in our families, in the lives around us. If a person who is self-righteous and confident himself comes around, I really want to step back. I don't want to hear about what he's done. I want to see what God has done in a person's life, and I'm drawn to that. So today we need to decide, is our life changed? Have we been set apart for Christ? Have we been born again? Are we being conformed to the image and likeness of Jesus Christ? The very evidence that our hearts have been circumcised by Christ. See, if your heart has not been circumcised, you've been not born again, you can't right now confess your sins and ask Jesus to come in your heart. You can say, Jesus, change me from the inside out. I want to be like you. I'm no longer going to trust in my own righteousness, my own efforts, that I'm good enough. Because all of our personal righteousness is filthy as rags. Call upon him today while there's still time. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for these precious people. God, I ask for anyone who might be listening, anyone here today that has never received you as Lord and Savior, who has never been changed and transformed by your power, by your love, by your Holy Spirit. God, open up their hearts to know you. So, Lord, we just commit this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen.